this thing called tongues. Uh, you may have uh, familiarity with this concept. You may be saying, what are you talking about? But hopefully after the next couple weeks, you'll have some understanding of why uh, maybe as a church we hold certain positions like we do, and hopefully uh, what or understanding why maybe other churches uh, hold different positions as they do. I won't comprehensively do everything, but we're going to go right into it, into a, a passage in Scripture that actually is pre- pretty divisive in the history of the church. So instead of skipping over it, we're going to spend two weeks in it. It's going to be awesome. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 14, um, remembering that chapters 12 through 14 is kind of uh, one collective sermon, if you will, that Paul has about how the Spirit works, specifically how the Spirit works to create the church, how uh, the Spirit works to bless the church and to grow the church. And much of his sermon is uh, written uh, to this church in the city of Corinth several thousand years ago, uh, and it's intended to rein in what uh, is the Spirit-filled chaos that has come to characterize this church. And by that, uh, their gatherings in particular, the Corinthian gatherings, uh, are characterized by members that are competing for attention within the service. And they are doing different things to distract and disrupt the service that are very selfish in many ways. Um, Praying out loud, they are babbling that's unintelligible speech out loud, uh, declaring, thus saith the Lord, out loud, over each other, at the same time as each other, uh, and they rightly believe, they rightly believe that the Spirit is active and living and working and present within the church services, but they wrongly believe that He who has the loudest and the strangest and the most self-loving manifestation wins the Spirit-filled of the day award. So, they've got a problem. Now, beginning in chapter 12, uh, if you haven't heard our previous sermons and you're new today, you're like, seriously, you guys go right into tongues? And this is not, we just go straight through books of the Bible, and this is part of the others. So, if you haven't heard the others, then you kind of need to to catch up and you can get those online. But beginning in chapter 12, Paul uh, affirms that the Spirit is the person, the eternal God who is at work in the hearts uh, of individuals and in the church. Um, The Spirit begins by freeing men and women from idolatry uh, to sin, and He moved in this particular church, uh, but also in our own lives, uh, moves them from idolatry, from being idolatrous pagans and worshiping all kinds of things, to confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior that Jesus is my master, that Jesus dictates the decisions in my life and, and determines what I ought do and what I ought not do. And that same Spirit, when, when someone is saved by Jesus like that, that same Spirit distributes a variety of gifts to believers. Every person in the church has at least one spiritual gift, And by in the church, I mean you are a saved son or daughter of the King. And when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, He brings some gifts, not only the eternal gift, the immeasurably wonderful gift of salvation, but a bonus gift of spiritual gifts. And the Spirit brings 
uniquely gifted individuals together into one body. We've talked about this. We are very different parts, and these parts need each other. They need each other to to be who they are and to, to do the work of God. So they are not only needed, but they have needs. Every part is needed, and every part needs something else. So there's no... Individual, ramble-like, I'm all by myself, alone spirituality. It doesn't exist. You can't love Jesus and not love the church. They go together. Jesus died for the church. Jesus brought us into the church to be one body together for His glory and for our joy. Now, the same Spirit uses these gifts collectively to build the church, to grow the church, to mature the church and even to make and plant new churches. That is all accomplished by these spiritual gifts that God has given to men and women. And according to Paul in chapter 13, where we were uh, a couple weeks ago, all gifts are a grace. In other words, all gifts are given undeservedly to whoever God chooses, and none of them are earned. He doesn't give gifts to the spiritual or more spiritual people and withhold them from the less spiritual people. He distributes them and arranges them and appoints them as he chooses. And all gifts are temporary. I said a couple weeks ago that when we get to heaven, I'm out of a job, right? The spiritual gift of preaching is not going to work real good when Jesus is there speaking for himself. So, they're all temporary. They are all for this world, and this world is going to burn up someday. And all gifts are given for the benefit of other people. In other words, there's not a single gift that's given to you for you. These gifts are given to you for other people. They're other-oriented. And yet, we tend to as Corinthians have, begin to worship them and, and take pride in these gifts that we've gotten. Because gift, it's not for you at all. Now, depending on whether the church is gathered, which we are today, or whether the church is scattered, where we are most of the week, different gifts are, are more effective than others to do God's work. Paul puts somewhat of a hierarchy. In, in chapter 14, we, we see that when the church gathers, there is an order to things. And guess what? In our culture, order and structure and hierarchy and things, people don't like that. We don't like rules. But the Bible, and in 14 in particular here, gives more rules than less. Specifically as regards the church gathering. What a church must do, what a church must not do, and then what a church can do. There's a lot of freedom in what we can do in our worship, but there are certain things, and 14 is a great example of such orderly structure to what our service ought to look like, and a right way to exercise our gifts. And so, this text can teach us three things about gifts. It can teach us, first of all, that we should seek gifts in our worship. We should employ them, we should want them. But it's also going to tell us that We don't turn off our brains when we worship. It tells us to think as we worship, but then it's also going to talk about witnessing as we worship. So let's get into it in verse 1 of chapter 14. Here's what it says. 
We'll attack it in kind of three parts here. It begins with this. Pursue love. Now, mind you, this is after an entire chapter on love. Okay, so if you haven't heard 13, it's all about love. So he continues. It says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For no one who speaks in a tongue... Wait, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation or comfort. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophecy. The one who prophesies is greater than than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. All right, this is going to get so specific, you're going to wonder why people get confused so much. But we're going to deal with it piece by piece. First and foremost, Paul is very clear, we need to pursue love first. Love is where it begins. Now, the exercise of all gifts, regardless if it's tongues or preaching or service or giving, whatever... Paul has already said it must be motivated by and governed by agape love. We talked about agape love a couple weeks ago. It's a very particular kind of love, a love that was defined by the life of Jesus. They actually changed the Greek term a little bit because they needed <clears throat> excuse me, something or a way to describe the love that Jesus exercised. It is this other center love. A love that is not drawn out of us naturally, like attraction and, and erotic, sexual, passionate love. It's not friendship love that's easy because I like you. It's not family love. I have to love you because I'm related to you. It is love that is other-oriented. I'm going to love you, though you don't deserve it. In fact, you are incredibly unlovable, but I'm going to love you. That kind of love. Agape love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that hurts. It's a love that's not easy, but it's a love that's incredibly powerful and beautiful. And so Paul says that a new church, okay, and we're pretty new, a big church, a wealthy church, a popular church, a service-rich church, a growing church, even a gifted church is utterly worthless without love. It doesn't matter how awesome it looks or sounds. It doesn't even matter what good works it does. It's worthless in the eyes of God without love. And so, love here is much more than just sentimental feelings of goodwill or even these random or not so random acts of kindness. It is a love of complete self-denial. It is a love where people in a church... So we want to talk about whether we're a loving church or not, whether you're a loving person or not, whether we are a loving community, an agape-centered, loving people, or people that are governed by a love that is willing to go with less, willing to go without, and even willing to go with worse so that others might benefit. That kind of. So no matter how much we got right at Damascus Road Church, which is probably a couple things, we have everything wrong if we don't have love. So Paul states, start with love. That's where it starts. Because the Corinthians are starting with all kinds of other things. And it's making them very unloving. 
But then he says we need to seek gifts, right? A pursuit of love doesn't mean that we avoid or forbid or deny all, dare I say, manifestations of the Spirit. Now, we are to pursue love and we are to seek earnestly spiritual gifts, Paul says. So we should pray for gifts that are identified in 13 and 14 and elsewhere. We should appreciate the gifts that we are given and others are given. We should expect other gifts to show up. We should trust, however, as God does, that that He is the one who distributes. He is the one who appoints. He is the one who arranges according to His will. In other words, not everyone gets every gift, and not everyone gets a gift at the time and they think they should get it. God brings gifts at times. It takes away gifts at times. It's not just, I have this gift and this is who I am. Sometimes things change. And so, our seeking of these gifts, again, are governed by this agape love. What does that mean? As we pursue gifts, as we desire to have gifts, you will know whether your pursuit is rooted in yourself, your sin, or whether it's rooted in the glory of God by this. As you pursue it, you should be pursuing and desiring and wanting to see in others or yourself those gifts that will help build others up and witness to the world more effectively. That is what, our, like if you get to play it like, man, I just, I really want to do this because I want to be known for doing this. I wish God would bless me given the opportunity to do this. You're on a really bad path. Because if the path doesn't end with, so that others might know the grace of Christ, so that God's name might be more made, made more famous. If that's not where it ends, you're in a bad place, desiring whatever it is you desire from God, whatever gift, whatever skill, whatever opportunity. So we need to seek gifts. We need to seek them with the right attitude. And Paul gets very specific, especially to Corinth, but to us. He says, we need to desire, the Corinthians need to desire the gift of prophecy in the worship gathering more than tongues. Now, before we continue, we need to get a crash course on tongues. If you're ready for your crash course, here we go. Okay, Crash course on tongues. My crash course came when I went to the Assemblies of God School, Northwest College. I think it's now Northwest University. Didn't know what tongues was. My youth pastor tried to tell me. I said, that sounds weird. That doesn't happen. And then it happened. So... I have had more time talking about 1 Corinthians 14 than I ever cared to have. If you looked at my old college Bible, you'd open it up and you'd see there's two particular pages that are just talked full of underlined circles, question marks, all kinds of things. And it's 1 Corinthians 14. Now let me define tongues for you as, as, as we're going to talk about or as I talk about it. So we, what tongues? Tongues is this, as I relate it to 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. It is a God-given gift of speaking in a, what is most likely a previously unknown language. And that can be for private meditation, and typically that's uninterpreted, as you're privately speaking that. Or it can be in a public act of worship where it must be interpreted. That's what we're talking about. Okay, Languages that are spoken, gifted by God, privately or publicly. Now, the history of tongues is, is vast. We'll talk about the Old Testament later, but it begins in Acts chapter 2, really, where Jesus told, uh, tells his disciples, go wait in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and empower you to be my witnesses. Okay, so they go and wait, 
and pray. And what happens? The Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost comes and it fills them with what is described as the ability to speak in languages. And it's and interestingly enough, if you read in Acts chapter 2, all these guys are speaking in these languages, and it's not so much a speaking gift in the moment, it's actually a hearing gift, because everyone is hearing all of them in their own language. So, imagine 12 guys up there speaking, going crazy, everyone's kind of thinking they're drunk, because Peter steps up later and goes, these guys aren't drunk, guys. These guys are actually evidencing what has happened. The Spirit has fallen. They have been empowered. Jesus Christ is Lord. You need to repent and believe. And they do. So Acts chapter 2, and what you see is tongues shows up kind of sporadically through the book of Acts. And if you remember in the book of Acts, specifically in chapter 1, verse 8, it says that you will be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Right? And so what you see is tongues unfolding in that way throughout the book of Acts to kind of affirm that the same Spirit that began in Jerusalem is going to go into Samaria, Judea, and eventually into all the world, which would be the Gentiles. And so that's what you see. You see this history of tongues unfold in chapter 8 with it coming to the Samaritans who believe and speak in tongues. You see it coming to uh, a Roman centurion in chapter 8. You see it coming to uh, disciples of John the Baptist who hadn't really believed. They just had believed kind of the Jewish uh, baptism of repentance and never had believed uh, of Jesus Christ and, and his baptism, particularly being filled with the Holy Spirit and becoming a Christian. Oh, so you see it unfold, and then after that, guess what? You don't really see it until Corinth. And the nature of tongues is been argued in history. Like, what exactly is it? Is this just babbling, or is this actually real languages? And so you have a spectrum begins with known languages. They take that from Acts 2 and others where basically they see they're speaking in other tongues of guys that understand them, so they're speaking in foreign languages. And then you have a verse in like 1 Corinthians 13 that says the uh, tongues of angels. They go, oh. So now we can just babble and go, it must be an angelic tongue. The problem with that is that anytime we've ever seen an angel speak in the Bible anywhere, he typically speaks in the language that is speaking too, right? So it's kind of like, well, that's kind of an argument from silence, but I imagine that when you go up to heaven, maybe the angels have their own language, maybe you can understand them, I don't know, I doubt they speak English, right? I mean, maybe because I speak English, I hear them in English, who knows, maybe they have their own language, I have no clue, but I'm not going to bring that in here and go, well, I'm suddenly speaking angel language, right? That seems like a stretch, but that's what you have, you have a spectrum of, is this Languages, or is this actually some kind of strange babbling that is angelic in some way? And so where I've landed, where we've landed, is it's language. There are 6,500 spoken languages in this world. I do not know them all. And I imagine many of them would sound like babbling if I heard them, right? I'm sure there's some in Africa, they're like, you know, you're like, hey, that's a tongue somewhere, right? So if someone started clicking and doing weird things, I couldn't just say, that's babbling. Maybe it is a language. There's 6,500 of them. Okay? So that's the spectrum of like, what are we talking about? I believe that we're talking about in particular the gift of tongues here is languages. Now, there's a change in tongues, however, between what happened in Acts and what happened in Corinthians. In Acts, the languages or the tongues that were coming down were 
very much a sign. They were a sign of there has been a change. There has been a, uh, a condemnation, if you will, on what was on the Jews having rejected Jesus Christ and a confirmation of uh, what has happened through Jesus Christ to say these are the people of God. So it began as a sign, but it's different than the gift in Corinth. In Acts, it was to affirm that what had begun in Jerusalem and Samaria Judea was continuing. What had begun with Jesus, basically, was continuing. And in Corinth, we're talking about a spiritual gift that is designed to build the church. Not just to confirm that these guys are actually speaking for the Lord. So you have a little bit of a distinction here happening with the gift and the a sign that we see in the book of Acts. But all that together has created <clears throat> many camps in Christianity. And there's a spectrum. On one side of the camp, what we call is the cessationists. Those who say tongues are ceased at the end of kind of the early church age because they were no longer needed for the primary sign gift that they were. And then you have the other side, which might be described as Corinth, which is like we need to use them all the time Everyone should speak in them. In fact, as my previous school declared, it is the evidence of you being a Christian. If you do not speak in tongues, you are, do not have the Holy Spirit, because that's what we see happen in the book of Acts. And so, therefore, speaking in tongues, having the gift of tongues, was basically an affirmation that you were a Christian. It was often called the second blessing or the second baptism. We don't think that's biblical. That's where we land. We don't think that's in Scripture. doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't empower. doesn't mean the Holy Spirit doesn't fill. It does mean that if you don't speak in tongues, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Okay? Now, that's the spectrum. Where are we at? Well, you'll find out, right? Because he asks, well, I go into churches and people are speaking in tongues. And the gathering's like, what? Does anyone speak in tongues here? Have we ever had that? What if someone does? What are we going to do? It's like, well, hold on to your hats. Now, Paul says that prophecy is more important than tongues. And he doesn't really uh, explain what prophecy is. It's a little uncertain exactly what he means, but some would compare it today with preaching. Some would compare it with teaching, what we see in churches. Uh, what we do know is this, that prophecy, as Paul's talking about it, is uh, set against tongues. He's, he's contrasting the two. And what he is saying is, that which is intelligible, prophecy, and that which is unintelligible. That which is interpreted, and that which is not interpreted. That which you can make sense of because it's spoken in your language, you understand it, and that which is, I have no clue what they're saying, it's babbling or some foreign language that I do not know. That's what he's comparing. He says, if I have to choose, prophecy is greater. Preaching, teaching, revelation in languages I understand is better than unintelligible tongues. So Paul is not, though, trying to condemn tongues completely. But he's trying to place it contextually. And he says, those who speak in unintelligible tongues, right? Those who speak in just languages, no one knows what he's saying. There's no interpretation. It's just, blah, 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 whatever, right? He says, look, they speak to God only. He doesn't say that as a bad thing. He's just saying this is a reality. They speak to God only. 
Only God knows what they're saying, because no one else does. Okay? The second thing he says is they speak mysteries. Not they're speaking foolishness. They're speaking mysteries. That only God knows what they're saying. Third thing he says is that he builds up himself only. And honestly, prior to reading this passage, I always thought that was a negative. Oh, you're just being selfish with your gift. Right? It's all about you. But he simply is saying, no, tongues that are unintelligible are not evil, but they must be done privately because they don't benefit anyone else. But they do benefit the person doing it if they feel so moved to do that. So privately, Paul would have, well, basically he would have no issue with someone speaking in tongues that are not interpreted privately. And he goes so far as to say that he desires that they do. You catch that? I wish you guys all did. Now he's kind of like, I think, being a little sarcastic because they're so excited about it. Like, I'm really happy you all speak in tongues. I hope you all do someday, right? But I do think he is allowing and speaking against the idea that they're gone. But when we gather as a church, he says he would rather have them prophecy or speak in tongues or interpreted. He puts those together, actually, because intelligible speech, speech we can all understand, doesn't just speak to God, it also speaks to us. And because it speaks to us, it encourages the church Instead of speaking mysteries that no one knows what's going on, they're speaking truth about what God has done through Jesus Christ our Lord, about the sovereignty of God, about the beauty of God, about the power of God. It brings us comfort and encouragement to be reminded that when my world is falling apart, God is still there. It doesn't help me when my world is falling apart, when I lose a loved one, when I cannot pay bills for someone to go, well, you know, like, That doesn't help me at all. That might make you feel great, but that doesn't help. I need to know the truth of God. I need to hear it declared. And that's what our gathering is for. So uninterpreted tongues are designed by God to edify the self privately. But public prophecy, teaching and preaching, is designed to edify others. And you just ask yourself, quite frankly, when, one of, when the gift of tongues is exercised and one is intelligible, like it's interpreted, and you have uh, over here unintelligible tongues or prophecy in tongues, where is the attention going? Right? Where are eyes being drawn to? Some guy that starts babbling in some foreign language, what are you thinking about? I wonder what that foreign language is. That sounded like it wasn't even a sentence. That's weird. Or, man, that guy's spiritual. Right? I'm only thinking about that guy. How distracting he is. Or how spiritual he is. But when someone prophecies, my hope is that my eyes are being turned towards God. That's who I'm thinking of. And there's a real danger in preaching. Right? The exercise of preaching. When you think, man, that guy really explained that well. That was a really funny joke. There's a failure even in preaching the exercise of gifts if the eyes are going here and not to God. So when we talk about spiritual gifts, what we're talking about is where our attention being drawn to. And in Corinth, they're all saying, look at me, I'm spirit-filled. That's a huge problem. Now, verse 6, 
and following. He basically begins to explain us, gives examples to prove his point. He says, now brothers, if I come to you, like if I come to you guys speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or a harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's played? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church, which he said prophecy does. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen, to your thanksgiving, when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, you may be praising God, you may be thanking God, no one knows. And the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church... In the assembly, in the gathering, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So let's just break this down. First, he says this. When he talks about speaking in the Spirit, I believe he's speaking about speaking emotionally, not speaking in the Holy Spirit necessarily. So what he's trying to contrast is emotional with rational, right? The emotions with the mind. And what he says is that worship that is highly emotional, highly spiritual, but not rational, not engaging the mind, has no benefit for the church. So Paul, he states plainly that speaking in tongues without words of revelation to explain it, or, or teaching of some kind, or preaching is worthless. So let it be known... This is what we believe, and I speak for the elders. Unintelligible tongues or uninterpreted tongues has no benefit for the gathering of the church. None. That's what Paul says. He compares the practice to lifeless musical instruments, right? He says they're designed to make successive, distinct notes, unless you're playing a kazoo. But every other instrument has buttons and stuff, right, to make musical tone. I, I say stuff because I don't know any instrument. Kazoo is all I got, so harmonica maybe. But, but you play distinct notes to make a melody or a song. And so without distinction, without some kind of pattern, it's just noise. You ain't going to dance to just noise, although some of the stuff people dance to today you might consider noise, right? You can't, it's like, how do I, I can't dance, obviously, but you get my point. There's no dancing to that. There's no rhythm to that. 
He says, like a bugle, right? A bugle, which is interesting, has no buttons. Uh, a military bugle I read a little bit on, and that's to give, obviously, instructions to, um, to cavalry or to, to other soldiers in battle. And each call is a different set of five notes, I'm told. And it's just changed by the way he moves his lips, but they're distinct, like to, to charge, to retreat, to do whatever instructions that the, the commanding officer might want them to do. But if there's no distinction, it's like, what did he say? Right? To troops, what are they going to do? They're going to get slaughtered. They're going to be unprepared. There's going to be no fighting. And then he says, it's also anti-communal, anti-relational. Right? If, if when you babble in a tongue, if, if the other person doesn't know the language, then it's like someone speaking a foreign language to you, right? We think if we get louder, then that will help them understand us or us them, right? No, you don't understand. Like, it doesn't work, right? There's no, like, we're missing relationally. That person is a foreigner to me. I'm like, I, don't, I don't get it. We'll start drawing pictures because this is not working. And so Paul basically says, look, what that does really is just work against unity because when someone speaks in a language I don't understand and that's what they stick with, that only shows me how different we are, not how similar we are. That's the only thing I see. Like, we're just very different. you got your own world, and I wish I knew it, but since I don't, I don't care. That's anti-everything. That's anti everything that, there's no relationship there. And so, this is the very problem with Corinth. They're all excited about the spiritual stuff that's breaking them apart. They have no rhythm together. They have no community together. Their mission is totally destroyed because they're not working together because they're so excited about their individual spirituality and everything God's doing for them, though no one can understand it, but they look spiritual. On the contrast, though, because I'm not convinced that we have that problem as our church. In fact, there's many churches that would be uh, similar to ours and maybe considered more conservative Bible-thumping, fundamental reform, whatever you want to call it, whatever's your comfortable label. We have worship that might be highly rational, right? Highly, highly knowledgeable. We preach long sermons. We, our music is, is pretty thought-provoking. So worship that is highly rational or highly engaging with the mind, but not emotional with the spirit at all, guess what? That doesn't benefit the church either. That's the contrast. See, there's a danger in a church certainly becoming purely emotional, but there's a danger in a church becoming purely rational as well. And I think we're probably closer to that danger. See, most of the Corinthians' super spirituality is a response to their culture, which is very rhetorical, very mindful, right? Very analytical. They have teachers rising up everywhere. And early in the letter, Paul basically let's not forget this, renounced super articulate language as a means to superiority. He even says, like, I didn't come to you with, like, really clever speeches. I'm not the best speaker. So I would say that what has become known in the church as frozen fundamentalists are just as harmful as chaotic charismatics. It's the same coin. And lofty church language or, or men who fill worship services just talking about the Greek meanings of words or theological definitions or, more subtly, just Christian tribal language 
language that the church only knows. I remember one time a friend of mine were in a church and uh, actually, well, I, I think I was there, and uh, the pastor mentioned stumbling. We never heard that before. He's like, you know, you got to be careful of stumbling. He's like, something like, what, trip? Like, like, am I trip and fall? What does that mean? We get this tribal language as Christians, and we actually take pride in it um, to the point where it becomes unintelligible to most people who are listening. The same way tongues does. And so that kind of language that, is un- that people don't understand is just as bad as unrestrained emotionalism. Just as bad. And so I would tell our church is that, guess what? We need not be afraid of the Spirit moving in ways that might feel irrational, might make us uncomfortable just because they're a little unfamiliar. It's okay to be a little emotional. It's okay to raise your hand every now and then. It's okay to pray with someone in the middle of service if you so feel led. To listen to the Spirit moving. And I think we've made the mistake of becoming maybe so rational, so mindful that we're more like, and you'll hear about it probably next week more, the Thessalonian church. The Thessalonian church was a little more conservative. That's why Paul had to tell them in 1 Thessalonians 5, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Like, Corinth is over here like, let's unleash the Spirit! And this is going crazy. And Thessalonians are like, no, no, no. We don't want to get too spiritual. We don't want to get too emotional. And so there's a spectrum, and we're there, and I think we're on one side rather than the other. And the last thing I want to do is go back to the other side, and people start going all Corinthian. Don't quench the Spirit. We still test things. Because there's lots of spirits that say lots of things, and just because you say, well, I think the Spirit told me, I don't necessarily think that's the Spirit of God. It sort of lines with Scripture as affirmed by it. So Paul says we should worship with both the spirit and the mind. So we are to pray and we are to sing and we are worship with our spirit, with our emotions, but also with our minds. Our emotions are a good thing. Our emotions compel us. They, they move in us to respond to God's revelation, right? It's like watching a Super Bowl or some amazing football. When you watch and you see some amazing athletic prowess, whatever, or a beautiful sunset even, you don't have to think, hmm, I really enjoy the mix of colors in that sunset. The orange hues really contrast with the pinks. and the. You don't do that. When you're looking at a play in a game, you don't go like, wow, did you notice how when he ran that button hook pass, he, I mean, it's like we don't, we just go, whoa, yeah. Look at that sunset. That's beautiful. I'm in awe. Our emotions are good. They they bring out, they help us to respond to God's revelation, but our minds make sure those emotions are directed. They make sure that we're actually worshiping God and not the football player or the creation that's so beautiful, but the Creator who made both. Specifically, I think we also use our minds, and Paul talked already about the mind of Christ, to ensure our responses to the Spirit moving are not selfish, but they are loving and selfless. So when we pray in prophecy, when we pray and, and preach, 
We don't just let go and let God and say whatever we think the Lord is saying through us unfiltered. Mistake. Maybe you've met people like that. You know, the Lord has told me, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, really? What am I, how am I going to argue that? Like, you just told me God told you this. So for me to, like, say, I, basically, for me to say I don't think so is to denounce you as foolish or off or to disagree with God? And when we sing songs, right, this is really typical of Christian culture. What do we pick? Songs that make us feel good. Songs that, that you know, draw out emotions in us. But we don't just pick songs because they feel good, because there's some really feel-good songs that have some really bad theology. And so we pick songs that, yes, are emotional. We don't want to just like be singing really lame-sounding songs with no melodies that are engaging, but we do pick songs that have meaty words because we are declaring things about God and we are praising Him with our minds and our emotions. To both ends. And there's never going to be a perfect balance. And guess what? There's not supposed to be. This is when you talk about, well, where's our church going to fall emotionally and rationally? Well, Paul says very clearly, as we gather, there shouldn't be a balance. If you're going to make a mistake or fall on one side, fall on five words of instruction rather than 10,000 words of emotionalism. So that's where we are. And if you want to talk about our church, that's about where we're at. And this is not about restraining the spirit, but this is about, quite frankly, restraining our flesh. Because if you read James and what it says about the tongue, how the same mouth comes blessing and cursing, we have to be very careful about what comes out of our mouths. It is a, according to James, a world of iniquity. You catch an entire forest on fire. And we can evaluate whether I think we're doing this well, whether we're navigating this tension between the mind and the spirit by asking quite simply, what are people who come into our church, Paul calls them outsiders. I believe he's talking about believers who are new to our community because he ends up talking about unbelievers next. So he talk about outsiders coming into our community. What is their experience? How is our worship gathering affecting them? And as Paul says here, does, does our worship direct them toward us, towards men, or towards God. When people come and are part of our community and just experience it for a Sunday or multiple Sundays, do they leave thinking, wow, amazing worship. Wow, preaching was phenomenal. Wow, the cookies were awesome, right? Is that what they think? Or they think, God rocks. What grace He has shown to me, a sinner. That's how we know. Does our worship compel others to agree with their minds like what they are saying is true about God? What they're saying, what the Bible says is true about me? And then are we responding emotionally? Because what He says, they say, Amen. Where does that Amen come from? Well, it doesn't start with Amen. What would you say? It starts with, God is big. God is great. I am a sinner saved by grace who sent His Son to die for me and I am not worthy, but He took my place. He died for me. He gives me new life. And we say, Amen. 
We don't start with, amen, go ahead and preach something. Because I'm just going to affirm whatever you say. It starts with truth. But it does have a response. And I'll guarantee you, you all need to respond more, right? We have all kinds of truth coming out. We need some amen. Last verses here, verse 20, says this. We must seek, I'm sorry, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but be in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign for not is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Yeah, it's confusing. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers, see, two different ones, enter, will they not say, You are out of your minds? But if all prophecy, and I know some of you've had that experience, right? Even last ten minutes in the service, like these guys are out of their minds, and you go, I understand that, been there. But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the seekers of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And isn't that what we want? Our worship has to be mature. Corinthians are very immature. And you just think, like, what does immature worship look like? Well, you could probably rewind our church to five years and you'd see. But like an immature child, the Corinthians are very emotional and very selfish. What I mean is they are easily impressed. They are easily swayed. They are easily disappointed. And like children, if you have children, you understand this. If you've seen children, you understand this as well. Children, by nature, only value typically what's personally beneficial to them. And they kind of naturally ignore the needs of others. They think about themselves first. And something is good or bad based off of how it affected them. And so the worship experiences in immature church are basically very unpredictable and very individualistic. But the mature person or the mature church, guess what, has control over his emotions. And the mature person and the mature church considers the needs and even the preferences of others before their own. And the mature church isn't stoic. Isn't like, oh, we've grown up and past being emotional. But they know that spirituality is not measured by tongues and tickles and tingles. It's not. As the mature grow, because this is Corinthians are growing, they're supposed to become better at articulating God's truth, not less intelligible. Like children. Like worship gatherings don't become less emotional necessarily, but they do become less unpredictable and less individualistic where I go, you know what? You leave on a Sunday morning and go, I don't know, it just didn't do it for me. You know, worship just kind of was today. Guess what? You're immature. You are coming to the gathering expecting to get something and not expecting to give something. That's Corinthians. They came to the gathering expecting to get prowess or or praise from other people, expecting to 
The only thing they were going to give was a manifestation of some gift so that someone else would think highly of them. It was all individualistic. A couple other things that are kind of weird. He brings in this, this tongues are assigned to unbelievers. and blah, all. Let me try to explain this quickly as I can. Our worship has to be mature and has to be grace-filled. What do I mean by that? Well, the presence of God's Spirit in the church, as Paul has described it ought be, is a sign to the world. But a church service filled with everyone speaking in unintelligible tongues is also a sign, and a bad one. What he says is, he references the Old Testament, and he references uh, actually Isaiah 28. But before we get there, he says that unintelligible tongues at a time were a sign to unbelievers well before Rome or Corinth existed. So we're talking about unintelligible tongues. Where did unintelligible tongues first show up in the Bible? The book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 11, after the flood, men decided, you know what? We rock. Let's build a city to ourselves that reaches to heaven and build it basically as a glory and worship of mankind with men at the center. And what did God do? I don't think so, right? God don't play that. He comes down. What does he do? Boom! Gives them unintelligible tongues. They can't understand each other. Try building a house, trying to speak, you know, 500 different languages. Not going to work. So what do they do? They disperse across the world. It was judgment. That was a sign of judgment that you guys are not honoring me as you ought. Now I'm going to disperse you and disunify you by speaking foreign languages. And he references Isaiah 28. What was Isaiah 28? Well, that was when Israel was in exile under Assyria. And what the prophecy he references there is this idea of as they're in exile, they hear the foreign language of the Assyrians that they don't understand, and that reminds men that they are under judgment by God. They were in exile because God is punishing them using Assyria. So unintelligible tongues has always been a sign of God's judgment. But everything changed with Christ. What happened in Acts 2? It was the reverse of what happened to Tower Bell. Tongues came down, and instead of not understanding each other, what happened? They all understood each other. And tongues were given to the church. Why, Paul says? To build it up and to bring more unity, not to break it apart. Through Christ, the judgment of God has been overcome by the grace of God. And the sign of judgment that tugs was has been replaced by the sign of grace through prophecy. Preaching and teaching in the church gathering that is understood is a declaration that through Christ, God has unified His people and God has brought many people from exile to be in one family. That is why we emphasize prophecy in our tongues. And the last thing that I think that makes many people uncomfortable, our worship has to be evangelistic. You notice Paul says that even in the church, the church services, though primarily for believers, there will be unbelievers among us. There are unbelievers among us right now. 
And the seeker-sensitive movement, if you're familiar with that at all, was right at least in asking the question, how does the non-believer experience our service? And unfortunately, they decided wrongly to remove everything, including God's Word, that might offend or hinder or otherwise turn off people who, quite frankly, had never been turned on before. So it was pretty foolish. But there's, without doubt, a seeker-insensitive movement that decides not to change anything or change nothing or ever ask that question or explain things because they assume that everyone who is there is a believer. And so what happens is you create a church that basically is confusing. They're speaking or might as well be speaking in unintelligible language. Paul says that unbelievers will enter the church and and what we do here will have an impact on them. And we are different than the world, but we don't want to be unintelligible to the world. And so if the service is full of unintelligible language, yes, it could be tongues, but it also could be ambiguous beliefs. Like talking about the gospel, but never saying what it is. Mentioning words like the Trinity and never explaining it. Using big words like sanctification, justification, and never explaining them. And going, well, everyone understands these words. That's unintelligible language. Things that we assume everyone understands. Why we take bread and wine or juice every Sunday. Do we explain that? Or we just kind of go, well, they just know what to do. We can be just as guilty if our church services aren't evangelistic and people say, I don't know what they did. They're out of their mind. Maybe not as crazy charismatic as Corinth, but just as confusing. And so, if our services are full of intelligible words, if we have clear sermons, if we have defined beliefs, if we have explained traditions, if the pastor preaches the gospel and biblical truth, if our children's workers teach the truth, if our people, you, as you're fellowshipping, speak the truth, then by grace, non-believers, guess what? Will be convicted by the Spirit. Through those words, they will be called to account, Paul says. They will become confessional, emotional about their sin, and they will fall on their face to worship God. God's truth leads to Spirit-filled emotion, not the other way around. And so we will lead with God's truth and we will speak it and we will preach it and we will live it so that others will respond like this. This is how we'll know God is among us. Not that people gather with us. Not that we have services that are enjoyable. Not that our music is great or our preaching is good. We will know that God is among us when Jesus saves people And if we continue month after month and don't see people being saved, we need to ask ourselves some really hard questions. Because saving people is certainly not the primary reason why we preach and do those things. Guess what? That's a benefit to glorifying God. But we should see, if we are glorifying God, the effect of that commitment. In your lives as individuals, in your neighborhoods, and in this church. As you preach them the truth, and you invite them into a gospel community like this. So my prayer is that you hear, we are not against tongues. 
We're not against being emotional. But we understand there's a place for it according to Scripture. And we'll lead with gospel truth and expect God to move in our hearts. And it won't just be moving in tongues. It'll be moving to our faces where we worship the Lord and King. We'll take communion this morning. And my prayer is that as you come, you understand what we're doing. The bread and the wine or the juice represent the new covenant in Jesus Christ's blood. He is the one who basically said, by my blood and by my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, I did everything that needed to be done to bring you back into the relationship that you abandoned back in the garden with Adam and Eve. He did it all. And he's still doing it all. And so as we come, it is a declaration of our own sinfulness and his beautiful, encompassing grace that covers every sin because it's eternal blood. I pray you'll join us as we take it as a family. Let's pray. Father God,